UCB Life Issues with Paul Hammond. And a very warm welcome to this week's Life Issues. There is a clear message about in the world today. It is that Christianity and faith is irrelevant. That biblical values are out of touch with how people want to live their lives and the things they think are important. And although the growth of global faith belies that opinion, for many Christians living in a nation that increasingly seems to have real animosity towards the teachings of Jesus, the no creator God, no absolute morality, no absolute truth, we all have individual freedom to live, think, believe, identify how we want philosophy, well, it throws up questions and accusations that often we feel ill-equipped to deal with. So what do we do? Well, Dr. Sharon James is a social policy analyst for the Christian Institute. She's also a student of history and theology and has written several books that look to address the problem of the misrepresentation of the Christian message's impact throughout history and around the world. And although, to paraphrase the back cover of one of her books, many people would say that Christianity has done more harm than good to our world, she would argue clearly that Christianity has transformed the world in which we live. And maybe it's time we stood up for that truth a bit more, Sharon? Absolutely, Paul. I couldn't agree more. And I think the interesting thing is that many people around us would say, well, we don't believe in Christianity at all. In fact, we think Christianity is harmful and dangerous. But they would still say that and still sincerely believe in the virtues of justice and freedom and compassion and love. Good on them. And we believe that everybody, in a sense, has those senses of justice hardwired into them because they're made by a creator God with a conscience. But what I would want to say to those people who say that Christianity has been harmful is, where do you get those virtues mm. from? The only solid foundation for them is a Christian worldview. If we've just arisen out of chance, if we're just products of matter and chance, how could you justify unique dignity for human life anyway? What's the basis for human dignity? And what's the basis for respecting everybody? All of these things, when you really unpick away at them, the solid foundation is the idea that every human being has been made in the image of God. And then God, our creator, puts on us the obligation to care for other people. That's the great command. Love God, love your neighbour. Do you think part of the problem that we face with this sort of religious illiteracy that people seem to have and, and lack of understanding of the true history of the uh, message of hope that is in Jesus, not necessarily the true history of the church, that might be something different, but that the, the impact of the principles of God's heart. Do you think part of the reason people don't understand them is because often within the church we don't understand them either and we don't see their impact and we don't recognize these principles of justice and 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 equality and fairness we ourselves don't realize that actually they have their roots not in the classics not in in marxism but actually in the bible i couldn't agree more that's an absolutely brilliant point when you look at it historically we absolutely thank God for the great evangelical awakenings of the 18th century. And I'm a huge 
a believer in learning from history, praying for revival, looking at great figures such as Wesley and Winfield. But I think one of the negative impacts of that was that many current Bible-believing Christians so emphasize the importance of individual salvation, the, idea, the, the absolute truth that as an individual, we can ask God for mercy and receive mercy. But it's a much bigger picture than that. You have yes. to start with creation, that God is the creator of the whole world, and that every single human being has been created by God to enjoy God and love God. And God hardwires into human beings, everybody, these deep senses of um, love and justice and compassion and so forth. And so when we over-individualize Christianity in our churches, we miss out on that big global um, world-changing, world-transforming vision that we should be confident about when we speak to other people. If you want to find out more about Sharon's books, well, most of them are published by ChristianFocus.com and the titles in many ways speak for themselves with phrases like what Christians need to know, the lies we are told and the truth we must hold. That's her latest. And how Christianity transformed the world. That's our theme for this week. And I wonder, Sharon, why this is such a blazing torch for you. Is it the historian in you? It's a combination. Uh, I did start life as a history teacher. I'll put my hand up and, and say that. Uh, but since then, I've had the opportunity, by God's kindness, to be involved in many, many different ministries, including ministries to women that led me to speak in many different parts of the world and meet real women and hear their stories um, in different cultural contexts. And then I've been able to study theology and then social sciences at a doctoral level. And I've had the privilege of working for the Christian Institute for many years. So it's a sort of combination of having a historical viewpoint, but as a Christian saying, I believe that Christianity is good news. Many people today are saying, oh, no, 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 it's not. It's toxic, oppressive. It's demeaned women. It's been bad for human rights. And the historian in me is shouting and screaming, no, 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 no. When you look at the historical evidence, we have a good story to tell. Let's just go back and look at the evidence. What's happened in history? Of course, there are bad, bad episodes, which we would never condone, where you've had institutional Christianity rather than real living Christianity. And we would not want to condone everything that's happened in the name of Christ. But when you look at people who love the Lord, the impact on them is that they then love their neighbour. And when you look at that played out in history, there's a good story to tell. And we'll come back to some of these points that we're kind of throwing out and glossing quickly over. We will come back to them and unpick them a little bit. But when you talk about Christianity transforming the world, how big can we play this thought? And and I suppose as well, what shape might the world have been without the effect of the gospel? Because the gospel wasn't the only philosophy that was around. It wasn't the only ideology. It wasn't the only faith that was in town. And some would argue that it was the, the classics that ushered in enlightenment rather than faith and religion. That's a really interesting question. Um, and of course, because we believe that God is the creator and he's created all human beings in his image, and he's given human beings the capacity to reason and discover and explore. That's why human beings are curious about finding out how to live life well. 
And when you look at the classics, there are great things there to learn and to cherish and to value because these people, by what we would call God's common grace, God's everyday grace, have that inbuilt sense of justice that as human beings we all have. Even a two-year-old shouts and screams if they think their sibling has been given more sweets. <laughs> so there were, there, there were good things in the classical tradition. It's interesting if you read Calvin's Institutes, um, right up there in, in, in book one, he's saying we should learn from pagans. They, they've, they've taught us many good things. But, but what was missing was God's special revelation in scripture, which shows us that as sinners, we need a savior and that Christ has provided that way of salvation and shown us the way to live. And then you have the power to live out that radical Christ-like injunction to love your enemies. Pagans didn't have that. They went an awful long way, but they never went into the ethic of love your enemies, mm. have compassion on all. They believed that education was for freemen, not slaves. When the Christian church came into being at Pentecost, you had Christian communities that included slaves and free people on an equal basis, enjoying fellowship together. That was revolutionary in the ancient world. And the idea that you should show mercy and compassion to the poor and the beggars and the destitute, again, this was radical and revolutionary. Some and might, it's transformed the world since then, and we can carry on from there. Yeah, Because mm. some might say that we, we've had, live in a society, especially in the West now, where we have moved away from faith, where a secularised ideal has taken dominance in how people think. But uh, I wonder for you, what is the the key, the overarching thing that shines out for you that actually this world would be lacking if that influence of Christianity had not helped shape this particular area of thought, philosophy, human behaviour? Well, one way of, of, of answering that, Paul, might be to look back to the first three centuries after the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. Because you begin with a few frightened disciples, a very small group. And then within three centuries, you have Christianity as having expanded so extraordinarily powerfully and quickly that it becomes the dominant force. Now, a secular historian, Rodney Stark, has explained, I think, quite coherently why that can be understood because the transforming ethic of Christianity was to treat every single human being as an individual with dignity before God. And that, for example, transformed the sexual ethic. Whereas in the ancient world, a few freemen basically exploited slave men, all of women, children for their own benefit. And this created oceans of human suffering. The Christian sexual ethic said everybody male or female, slave or free, the sexual ethic is the same for all because God is the judge of all, we, you know. Uh, and this brought dignity to women. Christianity spread particularly quickly um, among women. And, and so in, in real money, Christians were the ones who were burying the dead, staying around in plagues to look after the sick, whether they were pagans or Christians, um, discouraging child marriage and, and, and horrible treatment of women. So it was that real-life impact of all of that. But then in later centuries, you see philanthropy, healthcare, education for all, um, 
these kind of whole areas of human life are impacted for good. And it's hard to imagine, isn't it, a world that had not been shaped by that influence and had not been improved. What would it have been like? What might we have faced? What might we have struggled with? My guest this week is Sharon James. Her book is called How Christianity Transformed the World, and it is published by Christian Focus Books. ChristianFocus.com is their website. So let, let's just start to unpick some of those ideas. And, and I wonder if we could start with that thought that you, you raised about the way in which the church brought freedom and dignity and value to women in particular. Because we have to acknowledge that the church has held back and oppressed and in many ways whitewashed women out of a lot of the story of the development of the church. I mean, there are those who would say that really it was the church that was actually oppressing women and it was liberal philosophies that emancipated them. What would your response to that be? Well, on that last point, I will give you one very specific example and then we'll go back on, on the broader broader level. There was a very famous proto-feminist called Mary Wollstonecroft who wrote Vindication of the Rights of Women. And she very rightly said women should have a good education. Amen, amen, amen. She did very little practically to put that into effect. Hannah Moore was a great Christian social reformer who had started life as a best-selling popular um, playwright. She was also a socialite, friends with leading literary figures in London. She was converted to evangelical faith and she promoted education for girls as well as boys. But she put her money where her mouth was and she personally financed schools for poor children um, and made sure that girls in her area were educated. So so-called enlightenment thinkers can have grand ideas, but it's very rare that you find them sinking vast amounts of either sacrificial work or money into putting them into practice. If you look at the um, situation in France during and after the French Revolution, you had these great philosophers with their grand ideals of, of human progress and equality. The population of France was less literate at the end of that, the poor people less literate because you didn't have the church providing the education which yeah. you had done. They, they, they'd all been you know, burned and killed. So to go back to women, the question is, has Christianity been good for women? Absolutely. Some people would say that the ministry of Jesus Christ was literally the turning point in history uh, for women being treated with dignity and respect. And when you look at the impact of, human, of, of Christian mission, the very first thing Christian missionaries do when they go anywhere is to want people, men or women, boys or girls, to be able to read God's word for themselves. And in order to do that, you have to teach boys and girls to read equally. And the single most important factor in the elevation of women um, is education. And worldwide, it's been Christian missionaries that have blazed the trail on that. So, I mean, that's just one little example. Mm. Um, one, one, one could say more, but I give examples of, of Christian's in the chapter on education, such as Anne Judson, William Carey, Fidelia Fisk and others um, who have promoted female education. 
And we do take for granted, I think, a lot of the the ideas that you pick up in, in the book, ideas of justice, of equality, of freedom, of compassion. We take them for granted in this modern world. We assume... We affirm for them the the role of of rights that we have a right to these sorts of, of things, and you you can test that these things came to us because of a biblical worldview. Absolutely. Now, the very important and beautiful thing about the biblical worldview is that it provides the only workable balance between freedom and order. Because if you think about the enlightenment demand for human freedom, if you have unfettered human liberty and license, without that framework of divinely ordained order, it very quickly lapses and lurches towards absolute anarchy and chaos. And the reason they didn't see that coming was that they did not have the biblical worldview of the sinfulness of the human heart. Uh, Someone like Rousseau genuinely totally wrongly thought that we emerge out of the womb pretty well perfect. And then if anything bad happens, it's social influence. It's not, not our own, not our own fault. Well, just look at what happened at the French revolution. The grand ideals collapsed into the reign of terror within just a very few years Mm. because the human heart is sinful. So yes, individual liberty, but there has to be the constraint of moral law and order. And the biblical worldview gives that perfect balance between order and liberty, human reason, without denying any transcendent authority, says individual freedom, absolute license, that quickly lapses into chaos. Then individual power says we will take control. And you then get totalitarian systems where you have humans who do not believe they are accountable to God. Whereas the control on order in the Christian worldview is that no ruler should be above the law Every ruler knows that it should know that at the last day they will give account to God. So you can't get totalitarianism in that absolute sense. So the balance between liberty and order is grounded in the Christian worldview that says, yes, the dignity of the individual. But yes, all individuals are answerable to God, which protects some overpowerful, overambitious individuals from tyrannizing others. And there is, I suppose, an arrogance that seeks to deny that in modern philosophy, modern attitudes that go, this is about us, this is about our enlightenment, this is about us coming to understanding. Because when you read the account, especially the account of the early church and how the roles of women were affected in the account of how Jesus related to women within the, the formation of those who followed him, it is so apparent that these ideals were clearly there and were clearly structured within the framework of deity overseeing it. It beggars belief just how arrogant the human heart can be to go, yeah, we came up with this. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to the question of women again, women were grotesquely exploited in the Roman Empire. And and, and I give fairly graphic descriptions and quotes about the sexual oppression and the vast ocean of misery. Now, that was pushed back as Christianity expanded and protections for women were placed into law by Christian emperors. And you had 
mitigation of, of the atrocities of um, sex trade and so on and so forth, because you have this ethic of sexual purity. Now, look at today and look at how absolute sexual freedom plays out in real money, the expansion of pornography, the expansion of prostitution, and both of those things globally fuel people trafficking, sex slavery, which are on the increase. So if you look at the early church, the spread of Christianity pushed back, ultimately ended slavery, sex slavery and all of that, certainly diminished it vastly. Look at the modern age and you have an increase in prostitution, pornography, sex slavery, and that is not driven by Christianity. Christians oppose pornography. Christians oppose prostitution. They want women to be freed of those kind of horrible things. Um, so, so it's very much the, the, the um, ideology of complete sexual freedom, which says there's no creator God, nobody to whom we have to pay account. Individuals should be free to gratify their own um, desires. It's that anti-God ideology that is driving the worst modern day slavery of our time, which is all, all tied up with the sex trade. Sharon's book is called How Christianity Transformed the World. Sharon James is my guest for this week's Life Issues. And there's a bit in the book where you talk about the, the experience of a follower of Jesus who was put in prison in Holland, for the, in the Netherlands, for their faith. They escape. The jailers running down a frozen dike behind them falls through. The Christian turns back, rescues him, um, ends up recaptured and back in prison and executed for his pains. You kind of think, maybe you should have kept on running, son. But you use that story to illustrate what I think is a very important point in this discussion. Because throughout history, undoubtedly throughout history, Christians have challenged injustice and abuse. They've provided care for the needy. They have been altruistic in their service of society. But it is also the case that the church has inflicted a fair bit of intolerance, including on your man in the Netherlands, and uh, cruelty and those sorts of things as well. And you, it seems to me that what you're trying to draw out there is the difference between an institution that doesn't necessarily follow the true principles and an individual who understands the reality of the gospel. Could you just unpack that thought for us? A bit? Yeah, that's really, really important. So the second chapter of the book is about religious liberty. And I show that the biblical worldview is that God has created us as answerable to him. And Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. There are things that we should render to the earthly powers, as in respect and taxation and, and etc. But the earthly powers are not God. They didn't create us. We don't answer to them in that sense. We answer to God himself. And so no earthly power has the right to coerce conscience. Now, that's the biblical truth. And it's interesting that when you look at the early fathers, the phrase religious liberty was used in Tertullian's apology way back in 197 AD, where he says, not even a human would want to be honoured unwillingly. True worship has to be uncoerced. It has to be free. Um, and then others uh, followed on and said exactly the same thing. Now, the tragedy was um, that once you got the uh, idea that a church should exactly cover a territory, 
you move into what historians call the sacral era, the idea that you are born into the church when you're born into a territory and all the infants in a given territory are baptised into the church. And then you should not tolerate people of a different faith within that territory. Now, that went right against the biblical principle of freedom of conscience, answer only to God for your faith. It was, it was a dreadful, dreadful principle. Um, and of course, it became... Um, associated absolutely with the medieval Catholic Church. Now, the great reformers who I admire, Luther, Calvin, the so-called magisterial reformers, they recovered the biblical idea and belief in salvation by grace through faith through Christ. They sadly held on to the medieval idea that the church coexists with the territory. And it was the so-called Anabaptists and then the Baptists who recovered that biblical idea of Christian liberty, religious liberty, that nobody can coerce the conscience. So you have within history a bad tradition of what I would regard institutional Christianity negating the biblical truth of freedom of conscience. But you've always right through church history had real believers, living believers, who instinctively move towards the principle of the gathered church, the believer's church, the real church. Now, when you look at that example of Dirk Willems, um, who is an extraordinary figure, he was living in the context of the Catholic Netherlands. Spanish Catholic church was effectively um, the imperial power in the Netherlands. He was converted to living Christianity and he was baptised. He was put in prison, under trial, was probably going to be killed. He knotted his sheets into ropes and escaped from the window as a classic escape story and then ran off across the wintry landscape and had to cross a frozen dike you had get dikes in the netherlands and he was quite a thin man particularly he hadn't been very well fed in prison and he got across the dike fine by that time the alarm had been raised his jailer who was quite a large man um probably very well fed fell through dirk heard his cries for help and because he believed that Jesus said, love your enemies, he turned back to rescue the man mm. from drowning. He was then recaptured, taken back to prison, put on trial, sentenced to death by the Catholic authorities um, by burning. So you have there the absolute encapsulation of the false notion that religion can be coerced. That is not a biblical notion. And the true notion that we should follow our conscience, but we should also love our enemies. And that's why you do get extraordinary stories right around the world of Christians being horribly persecuted, but then showing love to their enemies. And sometimes, often, religious persecutors, the, the people who are doing the persecuting, um, are converted when they see the real eternal hope and faith of people like who the martyr Stephen said, you know, I'm, I'm willing to die because I see Christ in heaven waiting to welcome me. Mm. That, that glowing, transforming faith often does um, speak loud and clear to those who are doing the persecuting. And is there, I mean, I, I know that the theme of your book is to identify the, the positive influence, the good influence of the gospel message and of genuine Christian faith throughout history. But is there also a bit of a salutary tale there for us as we function today, especially when we do take on a bit of a silo mentality about who is and who isn't an acceptable Christian, let alone who is and who isn't um, a member of faith or part of the world. Well, you look at the 
I mean, in 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 the chapter on religious liberty, I just show that people through the centuries who have gone back to scripture realize that faith is the gift of God; it cannot be forced. We believe in proclaiming Christ, but we do not believe in any way, shape, or form in forced conversions are not true, are not real, and. and it's, it's exactly the same as love. Love cannot be forced. Mm. Um, you know, one of the great pioneers of religious um, liberty, Roger Williams, uh, effectively, I think, compared forced conversion to, to rape. You, you, you can't do it. You can't force love. You can't force conversion. And I think it's that when you have real living Christians who understand that our Christian faith is not just a belief that you impose it's a, it is a, a, a relationship of love and worship and praise to our living God that's, that is a heart thing. And you long for people to enjoy that joy, but you can't force joy. You, you can simply offer it. And it is a free offer um, that is extended to all. You're listening to UCB Life Issues. I'm Paul Hammond. My guest is Sharon James. We are wondering about how Christianity transformed the world and how that message actually belies the message that so often is communicated as to the relevance of Christian faith today and the positive impact that is part of our legacy and part of our history. Because one of the things that we do come across in the way that people shape a message around faith and around the church today is the idea that Christianity is a Western religion and that it is a religion of Europe and all points West rather than having any real relevance to the East or to Asia and so on. And I suppose it would be fair to say that many elements of the message that was sent out from the early church would have been, and the great missionary endeavours, it would have been a westernised, a western-focused message. But you argue that perhaps that's just painting a little too black and white. Well, Christianity is the first truly global religion. And when you look at the areas where the church is expanding most uh, dynamically, these, these, these areas are not in the West. And right through in each of the chapters pretty well, I offer examples of Christians who've had a transforming impact on their societies who are not from the West. I mean, for example, if you think of uh, the Vietnam War, perhaps the image that really sticks in people's minds most is that horrible photograph of, mm. of, of, of I think it's five, five little children fleeing down a road naked, screaming, running away from a napalm attack. An iconic image that's changed what the consciousness of, 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 the, of the Vietnam War. Now, the central little girl in that photograph, who was about eight or nine at the time, um, was a girl called Kim Phuc. And she was left with life-changing injuries from that napalm attack. And she grew up with intense pain, but also intense bitterness, understandably, uh, towards those who had um, attacked her country and left her suffering. But then she was converted to Christianity. And that uh, lady has spent her life campaigning for the victims, child victims of war. And she says napalm is uh, powerful, but Christian love and forgiveness is way, way more powerful. Mm. Um, and, and I give many examples of that, of individuals not in the West at all, 
but who have had a tremendous impact on their societies. And I have to say, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when those images were on the television for the first time and reading the account, and I've read her story many times, but reading the account and the way that you shape it within the chapter in your book, I found that incredibly powerful. And and it really does for me highlight that point that you're making, that, that although... Christianity has been associated with the atrocities of the West throughout history. The message and the truth has been from the very outset a message that has impacted globally and connected wherever people are. Once again, when you come to the heart of it, to the truth of it, rather than the institutionalized representation that people misinterpret. Exactly. I give a lot of examples through the book of, 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 of India, actually. Um, you know, it's one of the greatest nations on earth. And there's been a lot of research done there into, for example, um, Baglur slum, a, a huge slum. And women were interviewed from each part of, of, of that place. And it was the Christian converts who testified that their lives have been transformed because they had a self-respect, a dignity, and they were they were just willing to stand up against oppression and injustice and cruelty and violence. Um, so within that context, Christianity was working in a very powerful way. Or you look at the way that many people would say that the caste system in India, which sadly still survives, even though it's technically illegal, is one of the greatest human rights abuses in human history. But it's Christians who are opposing that caste system, but not just in terms of political campaigning, in terms of providing real life opportunities and hope and help, as well as the free offer of the gospel to people in the Dalit caste, many of whose lives are transformed through that Christian influence. And I give the example, for example, of a, a, a little girl who was born in a, in, a, in, a, in a red light district. And Growing up, she would have had very little hope and her mother died tragically of HIV. But a Christian organization in India, there are so many wonderful Christians doing marvelous things. They took her to a Christian rehabilitation center. And by the age of 15, little Bindu was, I think, top of her class and well set for a good career, um, far, far away from the red light district. And it's humble Indian Christians who are just yes. day after day after day going into situations of need and injustice, trying to give hope um, to people who are in, humanly speaking, hopeless situations. And we could go back through, and indeed you do, in How Christianity Transformed the World, published, as I said earlier, by Christian Focus. ChristianFocus.com is the website. But you could go back through the history of this country. You could look at the way in which education was changed. You look at the way in which philanthropy impacted the lives of workers in factories. You look at the way in which medical care was transformed because of the willingness of Christians to stay where others fled and to, to persist where others gave up hope. All those things are, are crystal clear throughout our history. All those things can easily be identified. So why is it that we are so intimidated by the hostility 
towards the Christian message. And I suppose in some sections, hostility towards faith in general, but it seems specifically focused on the Christian message when the evidence is that the gospel is and has always been good news. Well, you could perhaps suggest that maybe there's been a neglect of church history in some of our churches, which is really sad because there are so many great stories to tell. Many people might know about the headline names like the Earl of Shaftesbury um, or maybe Elizabeth Fry, the great prison reformer, or Josephine Butler who fought against uh, sexual exploitation of women. But there are lots and lots of other stories that are never told in our churches. There's a bit of a bit of a bit of a, a sad neglect of, uh, of of our of our own history, and that means that when you get the myth coming in, and I and I t- I believe it is a myth that humans were oppressed by religious superstition, and then you got the Enlightenment, which basically said ditch the idea of God and religious authority and the church, and we'll all be free. And then you'll get science and then you'll get human history progress and then we'll live in the sunny uplands. And you think, hey, ho, mm, yeah, look at the 20th century, 170 million people liquidated, uh, 100 million, you know, many, many of them by Marxist unbelieving governments. The, the myth can easily be shifted, but it can only be shifted by truth and evidence. And we do need to value Christian history and we do need to. Uh, I think perhaps just in our churches, make a little bit more of an effort to to, to educate ourselves about the good things um, that, that we can give thanks to God for when we look at the past. Why do you think we've stepped away from that? What has changed? Because historically it would have been taught, historically it would have been taught in school, of course, but what has changed in the attitude of the modern evangelical church, that we don't camp on those stories anymore, that we don't parade them um, as, as examples of the biblical truths we are trying to teach? Well, I think it's very sad, and I'm not quite sure what the answer is, except that many have been intimidated by the current secular narrative, which has been driven by that Enlightenment myth that Christianity is a toxic oppressive influence. And I think that there's been a bunkering down and a retreat into, in a sense, saying, well, just preach the gospel, just focus on the central truth of salvation. And yet when you do that, you shoot yourself in the foot because you are neglecting those great foundational realities of God as the creator God who has created the whole world for a good purpose, and he has good purposes for human societies as well as human individuals. Um, and, I, and I just think we need to recover that full-orbed vision that Jesus Christ is Lord of all of history, uh, and we do need to study history. Um, yes, being willing to accept that there have been things done in the name of Christ of which we should absolutely um distance ourselves and say we would not endorse that but say no in the name of christ also many many good things have been done yes. and let's talk, let's t- talk about some of them let's talk about an individual like andrew reed who was a humble dissenting 19th century pastor who pioneered care for the terminally ill he pioneered care for the um children with educational needs 
started great big homes that, that transformed the care of children with special educational needs. Probably many people have never even heard of Andrew Reid, but he was a hero. If you look back through our history, the truth is just about everything good that we've got in society finds its roots not just in Christian and biblical principle, but in the hard work of genuine, committed followers of Jesus being willing to roll their sleeves up and get their hands dirty. Whether you look at things around justice or freedom or compassion or equality, or whether you look at things like philanthropy or medical care or education, when you look at things like social care and respect for those who are living with disability, again and again and again, you see that the contemporary modern perspective is built not on Oh, we woke up one morning and we thought, let's be kind to those around them. But an actual calling of the Bible for us to love our neighbours, to respect those around us, to forgive as we are forgiven, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And yet we hang our heads almost in shame when people challenge us as to how relevant our faith is and our message of the gospel is in a world today. Maybe we do need to inform ourselves a little more about our heritage, our history, the legacy that has been left us, the giants upon whose shoulders we stand today. If you are feeling a bit of a lack in your life about it, well, a good place to start would be How Christianity Transformed the World, by Sharon James, published, as I said, by ChristianFocus.com and bringing us an important truth for this world in which we live, that the evidence is, the evidence, not the idea, not the myth, not the belief, not even the faith, the evidence of history is that the gospel is and always has been good news. Sharon, lovely to speak to you today. Thank you for joining us on Life Issues. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been great speaking with you. You have been listening to Life Issues. And don't forget, next week we'll have another one for you. So join me then. Ta-da!